are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi everybody, David Guzik here, here for our weekly question and answer time. And today I'm dealing with questions that have come in either in response to videos or on social media or whatever. A lot of times I find it a lot easier and more beneficial for other people to answer these questions on video rather than typing out an extended reply in the comments and such. So if you ever leave a question on YouTube response or in social media, make sure you check back on the YouTube channel because I'll attempt to get to your question another time on a video. So here's the questions we're dealing with today. And today we're going to lead off with a question about dealing with stubborn sins. And that's not exactly what the questioner titles his question, but I think you're going to see that that's what it really deals with. So let's talk about this dealing with stubborn sins. And this one's from Mike. He says this, Hi, Brother David. So happy to have found this channel. I have a friend who's a born-again believer that is telling me he has no conviction over smoking a little pot at night to relax. I got saved 20 years ago and to this day have regular relapses. The last one lasted a year. When I am smoking, and what he means by this, when I'm smoking pot, it is the first thing I think of in the morning and the last thing I do before I go to bed. God is so gracious but tells me I need to overcome this because he cannot work through me to do his will. Is it biblical that someone can be saved and not be convicted about a sin that so ensnares me? God bless you. All right, well, Mike, thank you so much for your question. I'm glad you wrote. Hope I can give you a good response. And again, let me get back to your specific question. Your specific question was this. Is it biblical that someone can be saved and not be convicted about a sin that so easily ensnares. Well, really, Mike, what you're talking about here, and let me respond to the question, is you're talking about the issue of conscience. Conscience. You know, conscience is that thing within us that tells us right or wrong. And here's the thing that we understand biblically. We understand biblically that our conscience is not sovereign. This is true not only in a born-again man or woman, but also in someone especially who is not born again. In other words, we can't only go by our conscience. Now, in many places in the Bible, you'll find this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, and you'll find it in many other passages in the New Testament. It talks about somebody having a good conscience. So certainly the conscience can be good and can work just the way God intended to. In other words, when we do something sinful, which by the way, I want you to know, I regard smoking marijuana as something sinful. I have a whole video on it. Look it up in my YouTube video library where I deal with the question. And the reason why, I'll just get to it very quickly, the reason why I consider it to be sinful is that the entire purpose of smoking marijuana is to have an altered effect, an altered consciousness. It's not done for the taste. It's not done for that. It's because in some way it impairs, it infects. That's the entire purpose. In contradistinction to uh, alcohol, which can be... uh, received in moderation without it having an effect on somebody. Okay, but that's a whole nother issue. If you really want to know what I think about that, go to that YouTube video. Okay, now back to this about the conscience. 
It's possible, of course, to have a good conscience. The New Testament talks about that. It's possible to have a pure conscience. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 9 speaks about that. But please remember this. The Bible also talks about having a weak conscience. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7. It talks about having a seared conscience, and that means damaged through burning, a, a, a conscience that has been damaged. Uh, that's in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. The Bible talks about having a defiled conscience. That's in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, speaks of a conscience that needs to be cleansed. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, speaks of an evil conscience. So what I'm just trying to say, Mike, you can't just let conscience be your guide, and you can't just say, well, I'm not convicted of this, not at the moment or not in a severe way. It must be okay. No, this speaks to the fact that we need to have our minds renewed. As it says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Okay, so our conscience, even as believers, it's not sovereign. Okay, number two, understand this, is that, Mike, you are convicted. <laughs> the very fact that you write the letter and how you write it, you are convicted about this. Now, you may not be convicted to the degree that you should be, and I understand that, and I understand how that causes you concern. But, Mike, you are convicted about this. If you had no conviction in your heart that this was something wrong, you would have never written to me in the first place. You know that you're in bondage about this. You know that even if theoretically something was okay for somebody else to do, you know this isn't for you because the Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart about this on this particular point. So Mike, I don't want you to go around thinking that your conscience doesn't speak to you at all about this. You are convicted of this, and that's why you're troubled about it. You see, here's the thing, is that our transformation as believers is real, but it's in process. And it's not going to be completed until we are resurrected and glorified with Jesus Christ. And until that day, there's going to be that mixture within me that I am truly born again, but there's also something fleshly within me that loves sin. You see, even as a believer, sometimes I love sin. But do you know how I'm truly, I know I'm truly a believer? Because I hate that I love sin. That's a mark of being born again. Sometimes it's within my flesh to love sin. But then even at some point, I hate it that I love it. And this is a mark of being born again. And Mark, I'd say to you, uh, this evidence, the fact that you're troubled about this shows that Jesus Christ is real in your life and he's working. So here's my advice to you, especially regarding having your eyes, uh, having uh, this trouble with a stubborn sin. Mark, I'd say to you, get your eyes on Jesus. Draw close to him. I've experienced in my own life, and I've talked to many believers about this through the years. They ask this question, why hasn't God given me victory over this sin yet? They have a sin that's troubling them. It's stubborn. And, and listen, there may be a lot of very practical things to do to learn how to walk in holiness. Uh, th the best thing to have is to have up close pastoral counsel with somebody who really knows your life and you can be honest with and to somebody you can be accountable with. All that is important. But look, when I meet believers who are troubled over the idea, why hasn't God given me victory of this? Maybe there's new or different things for you to do, but that's not where it begins. It begins with simply drawing closer to Jesus. You see, 
I want to suggest you a possibility that maybe you feel that victory hasn't come over this sin yet because maybe God has even bigger priorities in your life right now. Maybe God has even bigger priorities in your walk with him. I mean, isn't that at least possible? That sometimes the thing that things we think are the most important things that God wants to deal with in life. Maybe we think, okay, I, I've got this stubborn sin that I keep falling into, this temptation I keep giving, and, and I think that's the biggest thing. Where really what God wants to deal with first is maybe some area of love in my life. Maybe some area of unforgiveness that I need to grant to somebody else. You, you see, sometimes we can get a little misguided or even confused we think we know God's priorities for him working in our life better than he does. So put your focus on Jesus. Follow hard after him. Uh, keep walking in those basic disciplines of the Christian life. Read your Bible. Pray. Get together with other believers. Worship. Tell other people about Jesus. All those things are so important. And built on that foundation, really seeking God, God will guide you into his process of holiness and sanctification. And along the way, you're going to see those stubborn sins fall away. All right. Thanks for your question, Mark. Let me go on to another question here. And this one comes from Facebook, and uh, it's from Tim. Tim asks this question, and really it's a great question. He says, Greetings, David. As I'm reading through Numbers, I see references sometimes that all the counted Israelites from Numbers 1 would be punished for not entering the land, such as in Numbers chapter 14. But the Levites were not counted. So did a majority of them who naturally survived the hardships of the wilderness enter the land? Is there reason to believe they also doubted? Besides Joshua and Caleb, who else may have entered, if anyone? Thank you for your time. Tim, that is a great question. And I just want to say, first of all, I don't think the Bible gives us crystal clear answers on this. My tendency from reading and putting together the text as a whole is no the generation of Levites also perished in the wilderness. Now, you're absolutely correct that the Levites were not counted in the census, either the first census or the second census, the count of Israel as a nation that took place in the book of Numbers. So the Levites were not counted in that, yet nevertheless, the way that God speaks of his judgment he doesn't talk about it being on particular tribes. He talks about his judgment coming upon uh, the generation. And even though the Levites were their own tribe, they were collectively part of that generation that left Egypt. And so I'm very inclined, I can't say I'm 100% certain, but I feel pretty strong about this. I feel inclined to say that, no, it was also that generation of Levites that left the promised land. They also perished in the wilderness. They were part of that generation that did not inherit the promised land. And it was only Joshua and Caleb who were of age. And I know sometimes people mock the idea of the age of accountability. That's something for us to get into another time. But were who were of age when they left Egypt, it was only Joshua and Caleb who entered the promised land. That's how it reads best to me. That's my best understanding of it. So hope that's helpful for you, Tim. All right, now we've got another question from Mike. And Mike's question is in response to the marriage and divorce and remarriage video that I did. Look, if you haven't seen this video and you want a little bit of context for his question, you need to go back, look it up on the YouTube channel, look for my video on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, where I deal with, I think, is what a critical issue 
coming before me in the church today. So anyway, here's Mike's question. He says, my wife left me for another man in our church, slept with him, then married him, then told God they were sorry and promised never to do it again and still remain married to this day. Are they forgiven or are they still living in adultery? Mike, that's a great question. And first of all, let me just say, I'm sorry for your pain. I'm sorry for this grievous difficulty and trial in your life. This kind of breakup of a marriage, the unfaithfulness of a spouse, man, this is like poison in someone's life. And my my prayer is that the poison won't collect in you, but that Jesus Christ will bring healing and restoration to your heart and mind. Now, to your specific question. Mike, based only on what you told me, that they told God they were sorry and promised to never do it again, that sounds like they have confessed and repented. Now, we know it's possible for someone to say they have confessed and repented of their sin and that they truly haven't confessed and repented. But again, if they really were sorry before God and called it for what it was, Lord, this is sin before you. I agree with it is. I confess I am a sinner. I sinned on this specific point and that they repent, that is promising never to do it again, and then they're remarried, are they forgiven? I got to say, Mike, they are forgiven. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to uh, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what the Bible says. And so we need to be confident that if God forgives our sins, we truly are forgiven. Uh, Now, The thing I take issue with in the video is those people who say that the only way for uh, repentance can be demonstrated in this situation is for the person to end their present marriage, their second marriage, and go back to the first. I'm just going to disagree with that point. I don't think that that's demonstrated biblically. And again, you can go to the video for more on that. So I would say that they are no longer living in adultery. They're definitely in sin, but if they have confessed and repented of their sin, there is forgiveness in the blood and the work of Jesus Christ. What Jesus Christ did on the cross is the grounds for their forgiveness. So that's the best answer I can give you on that one, Mike. Now, here's another question, again, in connection to that marriage, divorce, and remarriage video, and this one comes from Jeff. Jeff says, I understand the biblical reasons for divorce, But where is it written that you can remarry, whether biblical reasons or not? Maybe I missed it, but I have not found it in the Bible. Are we just assuming that one can remarry if the divorce is biblical? Jeff, that's a great question. As a matter of fact, I love questions like yours, Jeff, uh, questions that get back to the fundamentals, to just, how do we know this to begin with? So that's a great question, Jeff, and let me just deal with it. Yes, the Bible does say that divorce breaks the marriage bond, and if the marriage bond is broken, then the person is free to remarry. Now, we know this in a few ways. First of all, we know it just by the nature of what divorce is and how it was understood to be in Bible times. When you go to the Old Testament, specifically Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, the Hebrew word that we translate divorce in our English Bibles, literally it means to cut off or to cut down. It means a cutting of a bond. In other words, it's as if if something was bound to me. If your dog is bound to a leash and you cut off the leash, 
There's no longer a bound there. Your dog is no longer bound to the leash. Your dog is in that respect free. So just the very definition of the word divorce in the Hebrew of the Old Testament, again, you can find it in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, that means that the marriage bond is broken. Then, when you come to the New Testament, when Jesus speaks about divorce and remarriage, uh, and marriage more specifically, in Matthew chapter 19 with the religious leaders, the ancient Greek word that he used means, or excuse me, that the questioners used when they talked about divorce, the, the word they used for divorce back then, it means to set free, to release, to let go. That's the root meaning of that word, apolaisai. It, it means to set free, to release, let go. So the very definition of divorce means that a person is no longer obligated to a marital bond and they're free to remarry. And this makes the distinction in the Bible between divorce and separation. Separation is where two people are still under their marital bond, but they just don't live together anymore. Divorce is where the marital bond is broken and one or both of them are free to remarry. Now, again, you got to watch the video to get the whole thing, whether a divorce is biblical, whether or not God recognizes it, but that's the fundamental principle. We also draw it from one other place I want to emphasize here on this one, Jeff. It's that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, Paul gives this principle. Again, 1 Corinthians 7, 39. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Now, I understand that that is speaking about a marriage bond that's broken by death. Okay, we understand that. But the same principle is used throughout 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in regard to whether or not a person is bound to a marital vow. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, it says this, But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. Again, notice that terminology, bondage or bound. It's used throughout 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You see, here's the principle. Either a person is bound to a marriage covenant or they are not bound to a marriage covenant. Paul uses that terminology all throughout 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And it makes perfect sense understanding the definition of divorce in the Old Testament, the definition of divorce in the New Testament. And basically what it means is that if a, if a divorce is recognized by God, a person is free. They're not commanded by any means. But they're free to remarry in the Lord because the marriage bond is broken. Hope that's helpful for you there, Jeff. All right, let's go on to the next question. Tess has a question in response to a previous question and answer video. Tess asks this question. She says, please clarify because I'm a little bit confused. God hates sin. Therefore, why did God allow Satan to have access to heaven? All right, in that previous question and answer video, I dealt with the idea that the best indication we have from the Bible is that at the present time and in Bible times, Satan has access to heaven, that his access to heaven will later be eliminated. That seems how it lays out in God's plan. There's different opinions about this among Christians, but that's how it seems to make sense to me and many others. Now, her question is specifically this. Why is it that God allows Satan to have access to heaven? 
Because isn't God holy and he can't allow sin in his presence? Here, this is what I have to remind you of, is that many times we as preachers, I've been guilty of this, almost every preacher has been guilty of this at some time or another. We've been guilty of this idea that we speak in theological shorthand and our answers aren't, our statements aren't precisely correct theologically. So when a preacher says, God is so holy, he can allow no sin in his presence. And, and therefore, that's why you have to, you know, have Jesus Christ pay for your sins because of his work on the cross, which is an absolutely true idea. But the idea that God is so holy, he can't allow sin in his presence, that's not exactly true. Satan is in the presence of God. It's not like God will explode if there's sin in his presence. God can, if his purpose is, if is in his plan, if it furthers his plan of the age, God can allow sin in his presence. Listen, Jesus was completely God and he walked among sinful people. It's not like you're talking about, you know, in some science fiction thing, matter and antimatter that can exist at the same time. So God can allow sin in his presence. It's just that in the way that he resolves things in his plan of the ages, there will be ultimately no sin in his presence. So I hope that's helpful for you. And I'll move on to the next question. Here's a question from Jason. Jason asked this question. Thank you, Pastor, for answering my question. Now it's clear in my mind. I have another question. Is Satan only in one particular place at a time? Example, if he's in Toronto right now, then will he have to travel going back to Japan? Okay, Jason, I think that's a great question. Now, he has a second question. We'll talk about that in a moment. But Jason's first question is this. Is Satan bound by time and space? Can he only be in one place at one time? And Jason, the answer to that question is yes. Yes. Satan is a finite being. He's a created being. He can only be in one place at one time. If he is, and I don't know why we're picking on Toronto. That was in your question, Jason. But if he is in Toronto then he can't be physically present in Japan. Now, that's true, but let me explain it to you this way. The Bible seems to indicate to us that Satan has what the book of Revelation calls his angels. He has a team. He has a whole group of fallen angels, demonic spirits that are organized and and ranked and and put in particular uh, aspects of work. So Satan himself can only be present at one place at a time, but he has a network, so to speak, that can extend throughout the world. And so through that network, he can influence, he can tempt, he can oppress, he can do whatever he does, but he himself can only be at one place at one time. So again, Uh, Satan is a finite being. He's a created being. He is not a God on any level. Well, I'll take it back. He's called the God of this age, but certainly he's not a true God on any level. So many times, now this kind of gets back to the previous question, where I explained that we sometimes speak as preachers in theological shorthand where people understand our meaning, but we're not exactly correct. Listen, this is true when we speak of Satan. And let me explain to you what I mean. Uh, because Satan is a created being who can only be in one place at a time, we'll say, oh, well, Satan was tempting me this. Satan was tempting me Brothers and sisters, I got to say, Satan is not going to waste his time on David Guzik. Not directly, not personally. He, he's got much bigger things and people to attend to. 
there is probably not a single person listening or viewing this video who has ever been directly dealt with by Satan. Now, indirectly you have because you've been dealt with by demonic spirits or whatever in his network. But, but again, directly, no. So are we speaking exactly, precisely true if we say Satan was tempting me, the devil was tempting me? No, not exactly true, but he is and was doing it through his network of fellow fallen angels, demonic spirits that are organized under his command. So hope that answers your question, Jason. And Jason has a second question. He says this, is it true that Satan cannot read our mind and that he only bases things on our facial expressions when he throws a fiery arrow or dart at a Christian, as it says in Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, and then he closes out that question saying, I pray that many souls will be enlightened by your channel. Thank you for those good wishes, Jasons, and your prayer that the Lord will empower me and the work here. That's great. Now, your basic question is this. Can Satan read our minds? All right. The best answer I ever heard to this was by a preacher friend I know. I haven't talked to him in a long time, but his name is Ray Beeson, based in Ventura, California. And I like Ray's answer to this question. He says, well, um, if my wife can read my mind, then the devil can read my mind. And what he meant by this is this, is that it, it's probably not true. Now, again, I can't. the Bible isn't clear on these things, so we can't say with certainty. So I'm going to speak in probabilities. It's probably true that Satan cannot actually read our thinking. But since we are under his constant observation, when I say him, I mean him and his network. Since we are under Satan's constant observation, and since he has so much experience with us in general and with human nature in general, because he knows us so well as individuals and as a race, by his observation, he can often reasonably expect what we are thinking. So I, I kind of lean on the side to say that Satan cannot actually read our mind. I think that's something that belongs to God alone, to the Spirit of God alone. But he can reliably and often effectively anticipate our thinking just by outward observation, just like your wife can do that or someone else who knows you very well. So, there is a sense in which Satan can read our mind, but only from this power of outward observation and tremendous experience with the human race. Jason, that's the best way I would answer that question. I hope that's been helpful to you. And I think we got one more question to deal with on today's uh, video. This is from Gene. Gene asks this simple question, although it's not a simple question. It's a short question, but not a simple one. She says this. What if the heads of your church give a woman authority to pastor a church? Now, I don't know if Gene is asking this in specific response to a video, because I have a video. It's on my teaching series through 1 Timothy. Uh, it's the second, it's the third one in the series on 1 Timothy. It's called Men and Women in the Church, where I deal with this in some depth. And, and basically, we come to it from that passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Now, this is not the only place in the Bible that argues for male headship in the home and in the church. It's not the only place by any means. 
we find it as a pattern throughout the Bible. We find it as something revealed in the nature of God himself, or at least in the representation of the nature of God. Let me be very careful of that. We find it as something revealed in the representation of God to us. Uh, we find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We find it in woven throughout the fabric of the Bible, that the Bible honors women, that the Bible gives women great work to do for the kingdom. Yet nevertheless, God has ordered that the authority, that the headship in the home and in the church be male headship. Now, this is a controversial thing. There's a lot of dispute about this in the uh, family of God. If you want to know my view, go to that YouTube video, Men and Women in the Church, in the First Timothy series. Now, to answer Gene's question, what if the heads of your church give a woman authority to pastor a church? I would say, no, that still isn't biblical, Gene. I understand it's kind of coming at it at more of a biblical way. But the authority to pastor over a congregation, if that authority is fundamentally unbiblical, according to uh, so many passages in the Old and New Testaments, if that leadership over a congregation, that particular position, if that isn't God's will, then it doesn't matter if a church declares it to be God's will. God's revealed that it's not his will. It, it, it's almost like this. Um, I don't know. Let, let me use an extreme example. I understand this is an extreme example, but if the heads of the church were to say that stealing was okay, it wouldn't make it okay. I, I mean, it, it would make people feel better about doing it, but it wouldn't make it okay. So, Gene, I would just say that this principle of male headship in the home and in the church Again, rightly understood, there's a whole understanding of this that takes a long time to develop, but rightly understood, this is such a primary principle in the scriptures that I don't think a church authority can just overturn it. That's my take on it. I hope that's helpful for you, Gene. Let's well, kind of finish it up for this week's question and answer time. I hope it's been of benefit to you. Let me just say this, that uh, come to our YouTube channel, subscribe. Uh, click on the notifications, of course, uh, send these to friends, give it good recommendations. A and then also, please, if you're interested on my written commentary throughout the entire Bible, go to EnduringWord.com. You'll find even more audio and video and a text commentary on the entire Bible that some people find useful. You'll find it in Spanish. You'll find it in Arabic. You'll find it in Chinese. You'll find portions done in Tamil. Uh, we have it in many languages. Uh, but listen, if you need that Bible commentary, go to it. It's there for you. It's absolutely free, and we're thrilled for you to use it and recommend it to other people. Thanks for joining us this week. God bless you, and hope we can do it again. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.